from the man who wrote the book on human behavior. A special edition Richard Flint podcast. Let's talk about it. Let's talk human behavior. Hey, Richard Flint, and I want to welcome you today to this section of uh, human behavior. And because that's what I'm all about. So my podcast is entitled, Let's Talk Human Behavior. Because everything in life is about behavior. And the greatest contradiction that we face today is the contradiction between what people say and what they do. And so this has always made uh, human behavior a topic that I focus on. And I am excited today because I get to have a conversation with uh, a gentleman that I respect very much. I've had the privilege of, of talking to his people on one occasion and have followed him and respect, and respect him very much. And I'm talking about Sheriff David Clark. And uh, Sheriff Clark, I am so honored to have you with me today. Well, Richard, I'm humbled by that. I really am. Um, you know, thanks for the wonderful introduction. It's kind of interesting when you mention human behavior. It's one of the more complex things to understand because it's so unpredictable. But at the same time, like you said, human behavior drives a lot of things in this world. Well, I can take almost any situation that I've dealt with over the years. Uh, and the challenges are for the word that people use a lot, the problems that people face. And I can always take it back to the contradiction between what is said and what is done. And that is always what, what has made human behavior so important to me. There's no doubt about that. Oftentimes those two things don't align, as you know. And uh, I think that's where a lot of the problems arise. Yeah. Uh, so how would you define yourself? If someone's asked you, who is Sheriff David Clark? How would you? Well, yeah, yeah it's interesting. Um, as complex as, as anything else, um, you know, hard to nail down in terms of, I kind of like it that way. You know, you hear a lot of times people say he's this, he's that. And the next thing you know, they look up and they say, wow, did you hear that? Did you see that? Where'd that come from? We, you know, didn't see that coming. Um, multi-dimensional. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. Uh, I'm not afraid to take a position on certain things because I'm in that environment uh, where people ask for uh, my opinion and, uh, you know, being a former elected official, I retired after 40 years in law enforcement, um, whether it be the media or whether it be the people you serve, people always want to know what's on your mind, what's on my mind and, you know, my opinion and, and position on these things. And so being in that situation, you know, oftentimes, uh, many of the things that people ask about or that I'm, I'm involved in uh, are, you know, they can be uh, hot button issues. And anytime, as you know, you take a position on something, you're going to set yourself up for attack. Yeah. You know, uh, several people who are listening may not know exactly who you are. Tell, tell my listeners here on uh, Let's Talk Human Behavior, tell them a little bit about you and your career. 
Sure. I spent 40 years in law enforcement, 24 years with the city of Milwaukee Police Department, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then I was uh, elected four times to be the uh, sheriff of Milwaukee County. Milwaukee County is a uh, has a population of just under a million people, very diverse. It's an urban, blue-collar city. Uh, many of the same issues um, with Milwaukee as, as any large urban area in terms of, you know, crime, politics, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I'm the, the son of a uh, two-parent household, mom and dad, who uh, didn't have a lot but did the best they could to raise their five kids to give them an opportunity to reach their full potential uh, in life. They provided the um, base foundation, the platform, if you will, with the education. And, um, you know, fortunately, my parents are still with me today. So they've gotten to see uh, with many of their kids the uh, fruits of their labor. And, and uh, I'm real thankful for that. Uh, right now, you know, I've been involved. I'm still in the belly of the beast, so to speak. That's what I call politics. Uh, still fighting the fight. And, and my fight isn't for people. You know, I, I did support this president, Donald Trump. I say did because I still do. Uh, but that's not it. I, I'm about uh, I remind people, make this about a movement. And that movement for me is freedom and liberty in America, support for the Constitution, uh, support for Western values, Western culture. And of course, you know, those are very lightning rod issues. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be shied away by that. I'm fighting for the next generation of people. You know, I had my time. I had my turn. I reached the pinnacle of my profession, having been in law enforcement. I was uh, the executive as the elected sheriff, and I got to lead an agency. So I got to set policy and all sorts of things. Uh, it's been a highlight of my, my life, really, is that I've been given the opportunity to serve my community where I grew up uh, in that capacity. Well, one of the things I know about you and uh, that I admire within you is that you don't play games. And one of the things that this has resulted in is that in, to a lot of people, you are very controversial. So what do you think makes you so controversial? Well, I kind of <laughs> disagree with that. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Um, you know, that's one of the terms that's used to describe me controversial. Just the other day, uh, I was in Michigan speaking at an event. I do a lot of public speaking still around the country. And uh, the the newspaper in that particular township in Michigan referred to me as polarizing. And, you know, I look at these terms. I look at these phrases. People want to put you in a box. And... Um, you know, define you in a certain way. And, and sometimes that, you know, label can be, I think, a pejorative in terms of controversy. I'm not afraid of light. You know, I'm not afraid of, of these things that many people who are in a position to make a difference, and that's what I've been, in a position to make a difference. They shy away from it because they know how hard it is. And they know the the um, uh, what can come out of those sorts of things when you thrust yourself out there. But when I when I hear controversial, I say to myself, controversial to who? Heck, I got elected four times uh, as sheriff of Milwaukee County. You can't get elected to a position without public support. So apparently, uh, you know, I have enough support on my side, and I hear it everywhere I go. Um, I have enough that, uh, you know, people are motivated by me. People appreciate you know, what I'm doing 
uh, with the platform that I have. And of course, Richard, you know this, and I know, you know, what you meant by that, um, reference to me and I don't take it negatively at all. I say, you know, uh, here's the thing in life. You're never going to please everybody. This is not going to happen. You just have to, you know, please enough people that, that people think that you're sincere, uh, that you are qualified to say some of the things that you do, take on some of the things that you do. I think I've demonstrated that in life. And like I said, I got elected four times with over, you know, 50% of the vote. So, yeah, of course. And a guy told me this once and after my first campaign. He said, you know, David, keep this in mind. He said, no matter what you do in this position, he said, you know, 50% of the people are going to hate you for it. You know, 50% are going to support you for it. So that's why I say, uh, I asked that question when a guy said it the other day, you know, why are you so polarizing? I said, polarizing to who? If I was that polarizing, I wouldn't get the invites that I do to speak. And I wouldn't have been as uh, successful as I've been uh, throughout my life. David, when, when I listen to you talk, would it be accurate to say that one of the foundations about uh, who you are is that you do not back down from what you believe? You can't. I, I just, you know, and it's what my parents taught me, um, you know, all throughout my early upbringing, you know, they, they used to say to me, stand for something. And I do, I stand for something. Does And I, I realize this too, Richard, that there are two schools of thought. And most of the time when I um, uh, take the stage, take a platform, I remind the listening audience, hey, look, there are two schools of thought on these issues that I'm going to talk about today. You may be from one of those schools. I know that I am. You may be from a different school of thought on this, and that's okay. Because I think dissent is healthy in a democracy. I think opposing viewpoints are a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, but I remind them of that. So, you know, just in case I, I say something, they go, well, you know, I don't believe that. And I don't think I go, that's fine. We can have that discussion later on, but you can't back down. Um, it, you know, there's, there's a little bit of this element called courage when you're in the belly of the beast. And that's where I am. I'm in the belly of the beast and you have to have courage, but you have to stand for something and you have to be able to communicate that, uh, what you stand for to people. So at least they have an understanding. They may disagree, but at least they understand what you're talking about and where you're coming from. David is a big part of being willing to hear what's being said. Uh, even that if I don't agree with it, is the ability to listen uh, with an open mind. And I may not agree with it, but even if I don't agree with it, there's always the opportunity to learn what's being said, correct? Yeah, and that happens uh, too often, unfortunately, in these, um, especially in the political um, political environment, but not just the political environment, but too many people are talking past each other. They're talking over each other. Listening is just in, uh, as important in communicating as talking is, but uh, more often than not, people do too much talking and not enough listening. But that's what is, has um, driven me to be the uh, the reader that I am, you know, I'm, I, I read incessantly. I love to read. And actually when you're reading, what you're doing is you're listening to somebody else. 
somebody else put pen to paper and authored either a column, a story, a book, or whatever. And I find that a more beneficial in terms of developing my listening skills and watching TV, because when you watch TV, you know, it, it's, it's the hearing aspect and that is probably not the best you know, of our, our, our uh, senses to use uh, in communication. And the mouth is the other one. So when I read, it allows calmness, quiet, and it's through the eyes and human beings are, are visual creatures. It's our strongest sense. So when you read, you're using your strongest sense to aid another one of your senses, and that's listening. So what if you're reading something and you don't agree with what you're reading? How do you handle that? Yeah, the mind's always working, which is why I find reading so fascinating. The mind is working as you're reading. Uh, but what I do is I start formulating questions that I hope later on as I continue that reading um, that, you know, that, that the person who wrote that will explain. One of the things that I uh, believe in doing, and I expect people to do it to me, is to poke holes in anything that I say, any of my opinions or positions, poke holes in it, find weaknesses, and question me on that stuff. Because too often... Uh, all we really get from people are opinions and anybody can have an opinion. But what I try to do is I state a position and then I back it up with some research that I've done, some data uh, that I can present to strengthen that. That doesn't mean it's the right thing. Oftentimes, I'll give you an example. Someone will state something to me and the first question is, well, where did you get that from? You know, how did you come to that conclusion? And and, and my the poking holes in it, you know, my hope is that they can say, well, hey, look, there was this research done over here, or this data over here says this, 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 and this, to strengthen that argument. Because if there's no strength to the argument, then it's just an opinion, and anybody can have an opinion, and most opinions, as you know, Richard, are uh, uh, ill-informed and uninformed. Would you, would you say that many times the difference between an opinion and a belief is my depth of commitment to what I'm what I'm living inside me? Yeah, I think precisely. You know, how committed are you to it? Um, you know, how, how how willing are you when people start to try to poke holes in it? You know, to uh, continue to back that thing up, continue to believe until you learned enough uh, counter information that it makes you say to yourself, and this is not a bad thing to say, Hey, you know what? There's some things I didn't take into consideration here and let me go back. And, and that doesn't mean let me go back and change my position, but let me go back and strengthen my argument, strengthen my position with some further research. You know, there's no finish line to this stuff. It's always uh, in support of you know, future arguments, future positions. I mean, arguments not as a pejorative, but back and forth uh, discourse. And, you know, there'll, there'll never be this, this, you know, there are very few truths in life, you know, about life. You know, one of them is death, right? We all know there's nobody that's going to argue that someday we're not going to die or that we are going to die. No, no, that's a truth, okay? But there are very few things uh, uh, like that in life. So the back and forth and the continuing and the strengthening of the arguments, you know, to get to, to a certain position where some sound policy can be made. Sound policy, not, put, you know, based on politics and, and you know, other things that 
lead to mistakes in drafting policy. And then even when you get to that policy, that doesn't mean it should be set in stone uh, because things change, times change, information changes. And so there's just always should be this ongoing, um, you know, back and forth and, and, and discourse and discussion because that's what life has been. If you think going back to the beginning of time, at least, you know, historically documented time, uh, you know, things have changed throughout there. And so we've adjusted. We've gotten smarter. We have more uh, intelligence now. We have more technology. But that has been the result of people pushing the envelope and, and not getting so dug down that all we do is talk over each other and talk past each other instead of talking to each other. You know, David, uh, I'm a person of pretty strong beliefs, and I love it when people challenge my beliefs because it makes me think. It makes me have to go deep inside myself. But what I find with people who live in a world of opinions, you can't challenge their opinions. If, if you try to challenge their opinions, then they want to pick a verbal war with you. And I think that's one of the issues that we're facing today is that so much of conversation is not based in beliefs. It's based in opinions. Yeah, you're right. And and that's when I know uh, when I get into a situation like that, that the person has no foundation to what they're saying. It's a sign to me. They try to deflect, as you say, they try to make it personal. Um, You know, they change the subject. And and I know right away, uh, which allows me to not uh, um, escalate this argument or whatever, because it could turn (laughs) dangerous. But to realize, you know what, this person hasn't really done any research. They have nothing to support it. It's an opinion. And we can have an opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'll tell you what, you can't bring opinion to an intellectual argument, you'll get killed. And I don't mean, um, you know, I'm talking about metaphorically, you won't be able to uh, continue your argument. You'll have to change it. You'll have to attack personal attacks. Those are the things that, that happen to me a lot in this political environment. And I know when that stuff starts right away, uh, that this person has no uh, foundation to their argument. Yeah, I want to I want to deal with three subjects uh, with you today that that are important to me, and I know they're important to you. Um, when I travel, one of the things I'm seeing today, David, that I have never seen at the level that I'm seeing now, is the anger in this country, uh, and the anger is not something that just is. To me, it's something that's growing. Uh, And it's created a division in this country that runs deeper than I believe that most people understand, which has resulted in a major form of distrust. And a lot of that distrust right now in this country is focused on Washington, D.C. And it's creating, uh, I think, and feeding the anger in our society today that we're more interested in winning a war than we are governing this country. Yeah, and it's been very detrimental, I think, to the continued growth of this republic. Um, you know, but, but I, I try to remind people at the same time, you know, when I do my public speaking, this country has been through uh, other periods of turmoil. And, and except for historical documentation, you know, we weren't there. 
But at the same time, because we weren't there, doesn't mean that it wasn't as, as much turmoil as it is today. And I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, the American Revolution. Okay, when, when the founding fathers decided to declare their independence from the crown, not all of the colonists um, who lived here at the time were for that. You know, they thought these guys were radicals. They didn't think uh, living under the crown was all that bad. And, you know, we went through a, a revolution to win our, our, our freedom from the crown. I'll give you another example, the Civil War and that ugly institution of slavery. Very contentious. You know, a lot of turmoil at the time between the North and the South. Heck, so much turmoil, uh, Richard, that the country went to war and over 500,000 Americans died in the Civil War to end that ugly institution of, um, of slavery. And keep in mind that, you know, half the country, the South, was for slavery, half the country, the North, was against slavery. And so those were very contentious times, too. And then I point to, you know, the, the two world wars that we have, a little different because uh, other than the attack on Pearl Harbor, most of that was happening off the continental United States. But I'll give you another example, the turbulent 60s. If you go back to the 60s with the uh, uh, anti-government sentiment, with the uh, anti-position of the war in Vietnam, very contentious, the riots of the 60s, very contentious period of time in the country, and so you use those, I use those as examples of what we're going through today. It's a defining moment. The American Revolution was a defining moment. The Civil War was a defining moment. The 60s was a defining moment. What I mean by that is it changed the country after, you know, the, 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 those, um, uh, those things passed. And so I think we're just at another defining moment in this country uh, that'll shape the country, I think, for the next, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. And so we're going through that right now. And so I don't really worry too much about it. Um, you know, I don't like a lot of what's going on either. But at the same time, I think the country has to go through this. Eventually, there has to be a winner in these political arguments we're talking about. Uh, because once there's a winner, well, you know, to the victor goes the spoils. Then those folks will get to shape policy for a while. And that doesn't mean everybody else needs to go away. But then you're supposed to use the institutions we have in this country to deal with our differences, things like the courts, things like winning uh, arguments in, in our legislative bodies to craft policy, to oppose policy of, of the people who are in power at the time. So, you know, it seems like it. Um, you know, but but our reference point is basically from the time that, you know, we've been alive. And, and, and so that's why, uh, you know, I love to read. I love history to go back. And, I, and when I did and then I do that sort of thing, I say, man, there's a lot of parallels here to what's going on today. And, you know, I believe in this country. I believe that, uh, you know, it will survive and. Uh, we'll move forward. I believe we'll be a better country afterwards. So I think we have to have the fight. We had to have the fight to secure our freedom from the crown. We had to have the fight to to end slavery. We had to have the fight during the 60s, um, you know, to shape the next 30, 40, 50 years. And I just think we're at that moment again in time, just a, a defining moment, defining period of time. From your, from your being out there uh, and being around people and from your background, do you think that in some ways today, uh, 
there is an underground civil war going on in this country? Uh, yeah, a little bit. You know, you mentioned Washington. I, I believe Washington is a lot of the problem uh, that's going on. And the reason I do is because uh, they're, they are disconnected from ground level. I'm at ground level. So when you say my experiences and, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, reference point I come from, I'm at ground level. I get to talk to American people, which over the last three years, I've visited 40 states. And, and, and uh, so much of that was during the last presidential election. But I got to meet Americans from all walks of life at ground level. I got to talk to real people. And, you know, to, to one of the common themes that developed is people at ground level, people in what the, the, the elites in Washington call flyover states and the elites in California, the flyover states in the middle of the country, you know, they feel left out that nobody's listening to them. When I say nobody, I'm talking about Washington, D.C., and it's because it is a bubble. And when you're inside that bubble, you're totally disconnected from what's happening back home. So, um, you know, that's, I think, what why we saw what we did in 2016. Someone came along and reconnected and resonated with people who felt that they were being left out. And, you know, it added it added fuel to the fire of this period of time we're going through because an outsider came in, a disruptor, President Trump, uh, was trying to set a new tone in Washington, D.C. It's a very difficult thing to do. That's a lot of the pulling and tugging that's going on. But uh, I think that if you can keep the federal government from exercising more control over our daily lives, uh, and let the states solve these things within the state constitution or within the yeah the constitution of those states. That's more at ground level. You know, who was it? Tip O'Neill that said all politics is local. He was right. Uh, it's at the local level where people can really be heard. We can't be heard in Washington, D.C. I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, you're in a different state. We can't be heard in Washington, D.C., but we can be heard in our state houses. We can be heard in our town councils, uh, our county uh, legislative bodies with the governors and the mayors and the uh, town presidents, so on and so forth. And I think that's where a lot of this stuff can get done. And and, and Washington needs to kind of like take a step back, and that's asking a lot. Well, do you think one of the issues that we don't talk enough about is uh, the power that people in Washington feel that they have, that they have the right to make decisions without without really talking to the people that these decisions are going to affect? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, um, one of the things that bothers me is this, this shadow government that exists in Washington, D.C., that wields a lot of power on the shadow government being the administrative state. Okay, we have all of these uh, federal departments and federal agencies that are behaving and uh, acting in ways that are um, not, um, what should I say, permissible by the U.S. Constitution. They haven't been elected. I'm talking about uh, you know, the federal bureaucracy. These are people who haven't been elected to make these decisions. They even, um, you know, dismiss our elected officials in Washington, D.C., in the Senate, you know, the representatives in the Senate, this administrative state. Um, I'll give you an example. 
the Bureau of Land Management, um, you know, finds people, finds ranchers uh, out west for use of, of uh, their private property. And, you know, some of these people have gone to prison, to federal prison. They've been convicted, you know, through, through the court, um, uh, the Department of uh, uh, in the uh, Department of Justice, but they're willing power that the Constitution doesn't give them. And so, you know, when you see that sort of thing go on, look at the IRS and look at what they were doing. They were accused of doing during the Obama administration when they were denying uh, tax-exempt status to groups whose views that they oppose. That's not their role. It was never intended to be their role. And so when you see this sort of thing going on, there is an abuse of power, and it's because Washington has gotten so big. The federal government, and this is what's interesting, is this is what the biggest fear of the founding fathers was, an overreaching, overbearing uh, central government being in you know, the federal government in Washington, D.C. So here we are, um, you know, with presented with what the founding fathers most feared, and, and now we have to deal with it. I don't have the answer as to how you shrink the federal bureaucracy and, and federal government. People have gone in there and tried to do it. I know that um, uh, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, when he ran back in the 80s, said he was going to shut down the Department of Education. We don't need a federal Department of Education, Richard. Uh, education is a local issue, and it should be dealt with uh, at the local level, you know, with school boards, school districts, the state should have a say uh, in, in what goes on in terms of a uh, um, education, you know, the curriculum and so on and so forth, the spending. But we don't need a Department of Education. Why do we have a Department of Labor? Why do we have okay, – let me give you another example. The Department of Agriculture out in Washington, D.C., they were – created at a time when we, we still had a lot of farmers, you know, over 250, 300,000 farmers across the United States. You know, we were coming into the industrial age, but at the same time, we still had a lot of farmers. So the Department of Education started with about 2,000 employees. We had, you know, 250,000 farmers. Today, we have about 25 to 30,000 uh, large farmers and the Department of Education has grown to over 20,000 employees. Why? And, you know, these are the questions. This is how government grows. And if it grows, it becomes more expensive. This is what's frustrating people. People want to get back to more state control, more local control. Um, the, the federal government out of their lives. But like they said, you know, the, the, the power that they wield, they can destroy your life. The IRS can destroy your life. Uh, Department of Justice can destroy your life. It's kind of hard to take them on. They have unlimited resources. The average person does not, can't afford the lawyers. And uh, it's caused a lot of frustration in this country. And that's why I said Washington, D.C. is a big part of the problem. You know, it's one of the reasons, David, that I am such a proponent of term limits, where you can't build a kingdom. Because I think sometimes some of these people have been there so long and they're so entrenched. Uh, that they, they do have a power kingdom. And to me, that's one of the, the big issues that we face. Yeah, I agree totally. Uh, look, term limits, the popular thing uh, at ground level with the people, with some federal term limits, states can enact term limits for uh, uh, state-held offices and local-held offices, but they can't with the federal government. Only Congress can do that. And you and I both know that Congress is not going to put themselves out of out of out of jobs. 
um, career politicians are a problem. Public service has been turned into political service and they can stay there forever. But that's why I think, you know, I'm a supporter of this movement called the Convention of States. It's one of the way that ways that we can change the Constitution um, and we can enact term limits through the Convention of States. Congress is never going to pass term limits. And like I said, put themselves out of work and put themselves out of business and shorten their careers. So, you know, we're left with the few tools that the founding fathers gave us to change the Constitution, to to put it in. That's what we'd have to do to put it in the Constitution, because the Constitution currently provides for, uh, you know, the, the election of senators and representatives. And it's kind of interesting that they they did put in. Uh, I shouldn't say they, the, the Congress passed term um, limits on the president after uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in there, you know, for four terms, uh, died before the end of the fourth term. But, you know, Congress did change the Constitution. That's how you have to do this. But they're not going to change the Constitution on something that's going to uh, uh, affect them negatively. Yeah. I want to change the subject with you for a little bit because, you know, 40 years in law enforcement. And when we look today, it seems like in the world of law enforcement, uh, police today are under attack. What What's going on? What is happening out there? Yeah, what's happening is uh, uh, with this war on cops, it's a, a weakening of the rule of law. Think about it. The, the law, the, the police officer, sheriff's deputy, uh, they're on the front lines of, of enforcing and protecting the rule of law. And there is a movement in this country to weaken the, move, the, the rule of law, to create chaos, to hopefully bring down this republic and then uh, replace it with some creation of their own uh, belief. And in order to do that, you have to weaken the rule of law. So attacks on police uh, and other things like not using jails and prisons, you know, normalizing criminal behavior, not using jails and prisons as crime control tools. Um, these things are having devastating impacts uh, at the local level, but it's being done intentionally. You look at some of the things going on where, uh, you know, in California, they enacted a law. That's legal for them to do this. Uh, they enacted a law that, um, you know, changes the standards of when an officer can use um, deadly force, so to speak. And, you know, that's got to be something that, you know, a decision that's made in real time and in, in circumstances that are tense, rapidly evolving and uncertain. And it's a bang, bang situation, split second decisions. And, you know, splits a, a second or two can cause um, cause you your life as a law enforcement officer. And we have things in place. Remember when I said you got to use the existing institutions uh, that we have. There's reviews of any uh, police use of force that ends up being fatal. Um, so we have those instances in, in, instances in place to do this. You, you can't make this thing impossible to do for law enforcement officers, which is going to have a negative impact uh, moving to the future in terms of recruiting, in terms of people who think it's worth, because it's a sacrifice and we do it willingly, right? Nobody is forced to be a law enforcement officer. We get into this willingly. Uh, we know the pay is going to be, you know, there's going to be a ceiling on it. You aren't going to get rich, but you also know that, there may come a day when, you know, this thing costs you your life, you know, your loved ones are affected. 
if the immunity is affected when a law enforcement officer is killed in the line of duty. But I'll tell you what, when you can't find people to do this, how the heck, well, you have to lower the standards because that's another uh, um, offset of this, this war on cops is you're going to have to lower standards of, you know, for hiring. And, and, and you don't, you want the standards high because it's awesome power and authority that we're giving our law enforcement officers. But when you can't find people, you got to lower the standards to get people in. And that's not a good thing either. So, um, you know, as I watched this thing and, and, and really when it, when it, I think it came to a head was in the ugly days after Ferguson, Missouri, when officer Darren Wilson had to use a deadly force to save his own life when he was attacked by Mike Brown and the the left, and that's who's, who 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 is um, behind this thing. Let's not kid ourselves here. They use that. They politicized it. They exploited that horrible situation. A riot ensued, and then as a result of that, uh, riots were happening all across the country. We had one in Milwaukee, and every time the police did something, it came under. Uh, examined by the microscope nationally. These are local issues. Let the local people sort that stuff out. People came in from out of town. They were busting people in to protest and to riot. They still let the the, the good people of of uh, Ferguson, the city of Ferguson, the county there. I think this is in St. Louis County, and the state of Missouri handle that thing. Stay out of it. Um, you know, when officers go outside of of, of policy, when officers go to the dark side, so to speak, and engage in behavior we find reprehensible. There are things in place to uh, rectify that. But, you know, instead now the police officer has been dragged into the political arena and now they're front and center, constantly under attack. This is not good for uh, states and, and, and local communities. This is not good for America. Which do you feel, David, that this disrespect toward law enforcement today is really the majority of people that disrespect them are the minority, which uh, is getting the the media attention. Yeah, this is um, this disrespect for police really starts with disrespect for uh, the rule of law, disrespect for societal norms, so to speak. Uh, look, the law enforcement officer is a symbol of the uh, justice system here in the United States of America. I find it just just shocking that you know people think it's okay, and I'll define in a second who those people are, but people think it's okay to spit on officers, to fight officers, to resist officers, to attack officers, um, and the performance of their duty. And at the same time, would never think of going into a courtroom, which is also another symbol and aspect of our justice system and, and disrespect the judge, right? You go into a courtroom, you're supposed to be quiet. It's yes, your honor. It's no, your honor. When the judge comes out, it says all rise. People stand up. You know, when you go into a courtroom, you've got a hat on, you take it off. Those are things that people would never dream of violating, but at the same time, you take another symbol of the justice system, the police officer, and, you know, they think it's okay to, to attack, to spit on, so on and so forth. Uh, I find it's very disheartening, but, you know, once they break through the front line, the law enforcement officer is coming next to the courts. So, uh, but, but let me touch a little bit on, on this, this disrespect for 
the rule of law and, and law enforcement officers. This started way before it got it, it reached the doorstep of the police. These are the same people who have no respect for their parents. They have no respect for societal norms. They have uh, nothing but contempt for these societal norms and for respect. You know, they're not respectful at home. They're not respectful in school. Teachers are under the same assault. It isn't just police. And, you know, that goes on and on and on. But the thing is, it gets worse. And so if, if, if a person doesn't respect anybody at home, doesn't respect anybody in the neighborhood when they leave the house, doesn't respect anybody at school, you know, these authority figures is what I'm talking about. Your parents, my mom and dad, they were authority figures. The teacher is an authority figure. When I was growing up, Richard, the neighbor was an authority figure. And so, you know, as you disrespect your parents, as you did, and this is what happened in the Mike Brown situation in Ferguson, Missouri. Then he goes into a grocery store, Mike Brown, and he strong arms a grocery clerk. Then he goes out into the street. He's confronted by a law enforcement officer, and he was going to show his contempt for that authority figure, whether we like it or not, a cop is an authority figure. And then finally he came up against an authority figure that wasn't going to put up with that. And I, I, I bet Mike Brown was surprised because every other instance that he had in doing that, everybody backed down, but the cop can't back down. So I think there's this uh, aspect of, of society where there's no respect for a lot of things that is starting to grow and get worse. And like I said, if it breaks through the, the front line uh, officer on the street is coming to the courts and watch the judge's reaction when someone um, decides they're going to act out in court and, and, and they don't give a damn. Watch the reaction. The judge will be shocked. Well, I'm shocked that people can get away with this with law enforcement officers. Well, you know, and this, this lack of respect seems to be uh, supported in so many ways by uh, making it a sensationalism. Uh, when they show the videos of the people dumping water and throwing water buckets at the police in New York and spitting on them and like that. And the more that that is shown, uh, the more it sends a message that you don't have to respect law enforcement. Yeah, and also some of the um, uh, weakening of the laws and ordinances that are passing uh, in terms of, you know, what's not allowed and uh, when people are, are, are confronted by the police, I think that that's in. Um, and you throw a, a bucket of water on anybody. I mean, that's an assault. It's not an assault worthy of, of somebody, you know, grabbing a stick or, 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 or a gun and, and, and countering, uh, but it is an assault. But what I mean by changing the, changing the laws and the ordinances is, you know, there's no violation for that, they say. Well, yes, there is. And it used to be uh, an assault on a law enforcement officer. And that was a serious thing when I was a kid growing up. You're charged with assaulting a law enforcement officer. You way cross the line. But when there's no consequences for this unwanted behavior, you're going to get more of it. And like you said, in, in our age where uh, mass media is bigger and larger, people see that. Next thing you know, it catches fire. And next thing you know, you see more of it. And you see it in other areas. And and that's how this stuff grows. But I think we have to get back 
to uh, what's happening inside the home. And, and, and parent, you have to, have to have more effective parenting. Um, that's where I learned respect. And like I said, my mom and dad were my authority figures, my first ones, but that extended. And they gave that, uh, uh, you know, that authority right, if you will, to the neighbor, to the teacher, and on and on and on, to the, to the you know, the, the cop on the beat had the same authority in my eyes as my dad had over me uh, and, and how he demanded respect and discipline. And those other authority figures expected it too. And if I didn't reach it with them, came back to the home, and, and that's where he got taken, uh, taken care of. We didn't need okay. um, police in schools when I was growing up. You probably didn't either. No. Uh, the teacher was the authority figure and carried the weight of uh you know, what a, what a police officer could do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, there's two things you've said, and I really believe in it. One is that a lot of this goes back to the breakdown of the family. And uh, I've always taken this back to the loss of the farm mentality, because when you were raised on a farm, you had a different set of rules. And there was a work ethic that went with that. And I think so many, too many times in this country today, parents do too much for the kids. And one of the things that they do too much with is they don't monitor some of the video games that these kids are playing. I mean, some of these video games when it comes to killing people are so realistic. It's like they're actually do they're actually there and they're part of this. And the violence that that has created I think has resulted in a lot of the violence that we see with young people happening in parts of our society today. Yeah, there's some research uh, done on that, and and it suggests that sort of thing. You know, there's an African proverb, uh, I think uh, Ghanaian from Ghana, and it says the ruin of a nation begins begins in the homes of its people. And I think no two words have ever been spoken. I think it starts there. And I think it has to end there. But what's happened is, you know, too many, too many situations, we've absolved parents of their role and responsibility to raise their own kids and we're turning to other things uh, and other entities to have that happen. Uh, my dad would never have had to call the police on me. Okay, never. Uh, there would have been no need. I may have needed, <laughs> if I would have really got out, gotten out of hand, I, I may have needed to call the police on him. But, um, you know, I, he never had to call the police. I mean, the teacher didn't have to call. I, Richard, growing up in grade school, the, the police were never called to the school. Never. It's just it, you didn't need it. Why? The teacher, at the end of the day, if it got to that point, picked up the phone, called the parents, and the parents took care of it. So it always came back to the home because it was their responsibility to discipline their kids, to punish their kids, so the teacher didn't have to punish. I mean, you know, in that sort of way to, to correct that behavior. Maybe make you stand in the corner and that sort of thing, but uh, you got you got worse than that when you got back home. So we've absolved parents of their responsibility and turned this over to, you know, entities that really are ill-equipped and ill-prepared to do this. Uh, teachers can't deal with this. The... the, 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 the uh, role of the teacher and the, um, you know, what they're trying to accomplish in school is to educate kids, right? Teach them how to read, write at grade level, uh, how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. Teach them history, teach them science, that sort of thing. It's to teach. It isn't a discipline. 
it's not the correct behavior. It's not to raise these kids, but that's who we're throwing, we're thrusting this on, you know, daycare centers and, you know, after school programs and all those sorts of things that are taking a place of what used to be the responsibility of the parent. And so when we've gotten away from these time, and these were time tested things. All right. Um, from a very long time ago where it, everything, you know, stemmed out of the home and the homes needed help. There's no doubt about that. That's what schools were for. You sent your school, your kid to school or to be educated, um, not to be, you know, have your kid be raised by the teacher or raised by this after school program. So we've gotten away from things that worked and we're experimenting now. And that's all these things are experiments with these programs to try to bridge the gap and fill the gap left by ineffective parenting. But I'm telling you right now, uh, it's not going to work. And and we can see that the results just aren't there. Yeah. David, I got just a couple of minutes left. And I'd like for you to tell the people about your book, Cop Under Fire. Yeah. uh, I'm real proud of that. And it was one of my goals, by the way, my, my career goals was to be published. Uh, either uh, you know a column or or a book or something like that, and I, I was fortunate enough that a publisher picked it up. But what cop under fire is? It's it's all these experiences that I've had uh, through life. It isn't just a cop book. You know, it's not just about cops and robbers. Um, and, and it talks about the things that you and I have been discussing. You know, for how long that we've been in this discussion, my upbringing, some of the experiences I've had, where I'm seeing where society's falling short. And it's also uh, complete with suggestions on how we can uh, remedy these things. You know, the way I look at life, you know, there aren't always solutions, but there are remedies that we can do to try to change course. The subtitle is Beyond Hashtags of Race, Crime, and Politics for America. So it does deal and touches on those lightning rod issues, race, crime, and politics in America. But it offers uh, more than a um, thumbnail sketch that you get from TV interviews and and radio interviews and some of the columns I write. You only only get so many words. So people only get uh, sound bites when I'm on TV and I'm on radio and writing. They'll get sound bites from me. But what this book allowed me to do was go further into those sound bites you hear, my positions, my opinions, some of the stuff that I know that I'm passing on, the research, the data, the support. And that book is full of research and data, by the way, to support most of what I'm uh, um, just about everything that, that uh, I talk about in the book. So I encourage people to get it. Amazon, uh, your local bookseller, you can get it. Um, people I that have gotten it have told me it's a great read. And I, I, I know I know it's a great read. I, I, you know, I had to write it. But uh, I thought it would be of value to people just, you know, looking over time. And how did we get where we are today? And what can we do to get back to those things that make America great? David, if you had to uh, end this show with one thought that you'd like to leave people with, what would that thought be? Uh, keep fighting, you know, uh, and keep fighting for what you believe in and um, you know, have the courage and conviction uh, to believe in something. And, you know, life is a fight sometimes, it's a fight most of the time. But I find that if you keep fighting and not worry about how much you know, whether you're winning or losing. And I tell people, keep fighting. You know, every once in a while, I look back and you look and say, man, look how far I've come. I didn't, I had no idea because living in the moment, you know, you don't think you're making progress, but if you believe something, stand up for it. 
Sheriff David Clark, uh, my guest today on Let's Talk Human Behavior. And David, just thank you so very, very much for spending this time with me. Uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate who you are. I appreciate the crusade that you're on, the mission you're on for your life, and the difference you're making in people's lives. Which is, I appreciate it. I want to thank you for the use of your platform uh, for me to, to, to spread the word. All right, my friend, take care of yourself. And again, thank you.